want to take this moment and pray before we begin realizing that that song is just amazing. kids got to see that. I really am. I want to pray for our kids right now. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus. Lord, take that truth and put it on their hearts. Lord, show them your glory. Lord, let them let them see it in truth. Lord, because I know as a father that if my kids see your glory, they will never turn back to anything worthless. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show them your glory. Lord, I pray for our hearts as well now. Lord, that we would understand that we are partakers in the divine nature because of your grace and your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. All that we have is from you. From beginning to end, Lord, you are magnified and glorious in our sight. Lord, help us to see that today. Lord, we need you to show us. Lord, to that end, I pray that you will accomplish these things by your spirit. And so we say, amen. notes are here somewhere and they're blinded by tears. Uh, well, it's a privilege to be here this week. This message was supposed to be last week. Last week didn't happen, so this week is happening. And I see that in God's providence because as I thought about what we were going to do, we were going to talk about the mission and the foundation and then talking about the pillars and then kind of talking about the pillars in full the next week. And as I started studying last week, it was around Thursday when you're supposed to be kind of done and reviewing the sermon. It was going under major changes on Thursday because I was convinced that what I was going to present was actually not what needs to be presented to the church. It was really something where I looked at it and I thought, I'm missing the point. I am missing the very point of what we're trying to say. And if you were here at the beginning of January, you heard Jasper speak on the change of our, our mission, our foundation, and the pillars. And this slide up here kind of reviews some of the things that we, we taught. So the, the slide is coming. There we go. So the slide is this idea of uh, we exist. So the church, the mission of our church is to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. That is the great goal of this church. The pillars are under there of worship, prayer, evangelism, growth, and love, and the foundation being Jesus, the living word of God. And the question I really want to answer today is how do these relate to one another? Because these are vastly important to everything that we do here at Summit Church the various ministries that we do, but how do they relate to one another? That's a neat little graphic, but what are we actually trying to express? And that's really what I want to put forward today. And I want you to leave knowing that the foundation is the focus. The foundation is the, the focus. The pillars are often our focus. The pillars are simply outcomes of reliance on the foundation. To put it another way, the pillars are simply the fruit of life rooted in the foundation. Or the pillars are strengthened by the stability of the foundation. And all of that flows up or expressions of the foundation to the goal. Which is to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. I want to look briefly at the mission. Because I want you to see that that's exactly what the foundation points us to. And so it says to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. What does it mean to glorify God? I invite you to go back to listen to Jasper's message. He kind of explains this whole thing, but I want to deal a little bit in detail with just the mission for a moment. 
To glorify God is to praise him to the highest degree possible. I hope that that is our goal, to praise God to the highest degree possible. Another idea would be to boast in him. When you boast in something, you have deep pleasure and satisfaction. And the Bible often talks about boasting in knowing God. Jeremiah, on the screen behind us, Jeremiah 9.24. He talks about the one who boasts is to boast about this. He tells you beforehand what not to boast in. He says, don't let the rich man boast in his riches, the wise man in his wisdom, or the strong man in his strength. He says, let, let him who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. And I put 1 Corinthians 1.31 because Paul quotes this passage And he says to the Corinthians, he says, listen, not many of you were rich or wise or strong. And he says, God shows what is weak, what is poor, what is foolish in the world to shame those things that are. And then he calls all of us. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is the only proper response to seeing the majesty of God. That's the only thing that you can do is boast in the Lord. But the second part is really by making disciples. And disciples are those who are lifelong learners. Those who are insatiable for more of God's glory. To see him clearer. And so the great aim of a disciple is to grow in their knowledge of God. And it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. We don't hand out tests for you to take. We want you to be transformed by this knowledge. To have an effect in your life to make you see God clearer and love him and desire to know him more. That's what a disciple is. Again, a lifelong learner. And the focus of this learner is the exaltation of Jesus. We want you to put him up in prominence, to put him in the highest position. The Bible talks about Jesus having preeminence or first place. We recently in the church looked at Philippians 2 where he talks about him being exalted. The Father exalted him above every name that can be named. And let me remind you that the Father put him in that position with great joy and rejoicing over his son who's thrilled to do it. And so you and I should rejoice and glory in the same thing, seeing Jesus high and lifted up. And I want to make the mission a little more personal for you because it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, that's the mission of the church, to glorify God by making disciples. But there's a challenge for you. I want you to think, I want to glorify God by being a disciple who exalts Jesus Christ. I want to be that very disciple who exalts Jesus Christ. I'm not just going to sit around and wait for the church to make me like that. I am going to pursue being a disciple who exalts Jesus Christ. I think of this from the story of the Bible. If you think of where we have come, that was the intention from the beginning. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is, from the beginning, the way things were designed. Our native language is worship. Native language. All of us speak it. All of us worship. We all praise things. And it's simply recognizing and responding to that which is glorious and majestic in our eyes. So if it is not God who is glorious and majestic in our eyes, we will not worship him. Whatever is glorious and majestic in our eyes, we will worship. But our native language is worship. Again, Jasper mentioned it is worth-ship. We put value to something or someone, and our natural response is praise. We always praise the thing that we value, and we also want more of it. So mankind's native language is worship, and mankind's native home was in relationship with God. I always think about Eden. I know whenever I read a children's book, I love that they start these beautiful pictures of Eden, but can I tell you the value of Eden was not that it was a beautiful garden? It was the fact that God was there. That's what made it paradise. That's why it was beautiful. If God is not there, it is hell. I don't care how beautiful it is. If God is not there, it is nothing. And so the beauty of Eden was the fact that God dwelt there, that he was with them. And that is how we were meant to relate, was with God, to God. 
And so knowing him and enjoying him more and more was the original thought. And yet you and I know that when we recognize that's original design, you also have to recognize what is lost today. And I would say when we think about that, we go, why? Why? Because in our hearts, all of us recognize that there is something wrong. There was something lost, something that needs to be renewed and restored. And we also know how it was lost. Genesis 3 very quickly shows that in our deceiving, we believe the lie that we can live independently of God. We can seek a different glory than the greatest glory, seeking something else, and we can boast in that. And so being able to relate to God and to glory in God, that that relationship was broken, was removed from us. And so now the Bible gives an indication that our heart is full of pride. We do not seek God. By nature, it says, we're darkened in our understanding of the glories of God that are revealed to us, and so we don't see God. Ephesians 2 says that we follow the course of this world, and Romans 12 warns even believers, don't be conformed to the world. The world is going to push you constantly to live independently of God, to seek a glory that is not the greatest glory. And the problem is that these glories promise to satisfy us, but we know that we are never satisfied in the lesser things. And God tells us that throughout his word. But that is our natural state. Lesser glories. Not seeing clearly, not seeking that which is great. And we know from this that in order for things to be changed, God must do something. Man is unable to do it. God must do it. And so in Genesis 3, even in the curse, God makes a promise He initiates the restoration and reconciliation. He says, I will bring forth a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. There's a hint there of that which is to come later. And he is a God who speaks. He speaks promises to us. But he doesn't only speak promises. He also speaks to us all the time in creation. It says creation declares, declares, speaks The glory of God, day to day it pours forth speech. It says something. And so even everything around us constantly reminds us that there's one greater than us, that these little things that we're pursuing, there's something greater than it. But we have to admit the Bible says that that creation is insufficient to restore the relationship. It can't do it. It's not the proper understanding of God. We need a clearer revelation, and that is why God gave us the word. We need the written word of God, and it tells us clearly God's promises to restore humanity to himself. Again, God is the one who takes initiative. He makes himself known. And this is why the Bible is the foundation of everything that we do. It has to be the foundation. It has to be laid first. And what do we see when we read the Bible? Maybe you read some random part or you're reading through the Bible and you're like, I forget why why am I reading this or what is the point of me reading this? Let me say to you that this, the testimony of the Bible is that God has made promises to bring his people to himself. And we know that eventually as we read, he gives us hints, but he is fulfilling all of his promises through Jesus Christ. The Bible testifies to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it testifies to, our need for Jesus, because Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to mankind. Look at Hebrews 1. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And then he says, in these last days, though, he has spoken to us by his son. So there were a variety of ways that God spoke to them, visions, dreams, audible voices, sometimes through disasters or out of a whirlwind, crazy things. But he says that was insufficient. This is why he spoke to us by the son. Because who is the son? He says he is the one that God has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. He is the one who created. He is the one who sustains. He is the one that gives life, breath, and everything to all mankind. He is the one who does it, but that revelation does not solve the problem of reconciliation. 
because we need reconciliation. We have a broken relationship. And so then Hebrews shows us. It says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And the rest of the book of Hebrews explains those three verses. That God is the one who put forth Jesus as the one who would provide purification for sins in full. And then he would exalt him to the seat next to God the Father, the highest position ever. And so the foundation reminds us that in Jesus Christ, we have full and complete restoration of relationship with God. And God initiates it. So we have to grasp this. And this is easier for us to grasp, I think, that it is fully and completely dependent on the grace of God. We know verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Again, there's this idea that you and I want to take credit for the very thing that God is doing. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from you. So if you have any questions, is it from you? No, it's not. It's by grace. Fully, completely dependent on grace. Because we often want to boast. But remember, where are we supposed to boast? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Jesus not only restores our relationship with God, but I would argue he restores our proper boasting and rejoicing in the Lord. That we wouldn't look to ourselves for the means of salvation. We would look to God and we would rejoice and boast in him. And so therefore we are to value God above all things. He's given us this salvation. But here's the problem. Old ways die slow. Our tendencies from prior to salvation creep in to after salvation. Many of us believe salvation is fully and completely dependent on the grace of God. We just saw that. We would say, yes, it's by grace I'm saved. Amen. But after salvation, I think there's a tendency that we rely on our thoughts of it's all about bearing fruit. It's about obedience only now. So the idea is if I've received grace, then I bear fruit. So I need to make sure that I'm bearing fruit. Now let me clarify. That's not wrong to say that after I've received grace, I need to bear fruit. That is true. But the problem is where is the focus? Because if I say I've received grace, therefore I must bear fruit, and I focus on bearing fruit, I've jettisoned grace. In other words, our culture teaches us if you see something that is wrong, fix what's wrong. Just deal with what's wrong. So think of it in terms of the pillars. You might look at it and say, well, I'm not worshiping very well. I'm not praying very well. I don't really do evangelism. I'm not really growing and I don't genuinely love people. So I should probably pick one of those pillars and start working on it so that I could get better at it. Let's work on love. I'll work on loving people. Or hey, you know what? I'll just start reading the Bible. I want to start growing. That's great. But that's not going very far. I'll just tell you, that is not going very far because where does the strength of the pillars come from? Where do the pillars rest? They rest on the foundation. They come up from the foundation. Think of it, if I don't have a foundation, I think it's simply about my efforts, I've removed the foundation. At, at best, it's sand that's shifting. At worst, it's just a giant hole and the pillars just keep falling through this massive hole. Because the truth is, the Bible warns us and also testifies to us that we constantly need Jesus. Constantly need him. I invite you to turn to John 15. Turn to John 15 in your Bible. This is a passage that maybe some of us have heard. Maybe we've seen it. Maybe we've read it. Maybe we've studied it. But I want us to simply see it again in simplicity. In simplicity. So John 15. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Actually, 11 verses. Jesus says this. Again, this is one of the last things. This is the last discourse, full discourse of Jesus, starting in chapter 13, going to about 17. This is, if you have a red letter Bible, most of this is red. It's pretty awesome. So when I had a red Bible, I always found John, and I always knew that John 13 through 17 is just totally red. It's amazing. But John 15, Jesus says this to us. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then he says, abide in me and I in you. Now, I like the word remain. It's a little easier to understand. Abiding, we don't really use that word. We talk about remaining. So I'm going to use the word remain. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Let's stop right there. Jesus says very clearly, simply, we are to remain in him. Remain in me and I in you. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? I would say it's simply to receive and to trust all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Receive and trust. The old way of understanding it was to make a house with someone or to dwell with someone. Imagine Jesus being there with you. All of the benefits of Jesus are constantly with you. You never leave. The idea of dwelling, abiding, remaining, that's what he's talking about. So wherever you go, Jesus is there with you and you receive and you trust everything that God has said. It's a coming to him, a constant going to him. Why does he tell us this? He says very clearly, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It can't bear fruit by itself. True branches who are in Jesus recognize they need full dependence on God. They recognize it because he says very clearly, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lasting fruit, that which is actually meaningful fruit, will not come unless it is from Jesus. Think of the foolish thing of trying to staple or tie fruit onto a tree. That fruit might look good for a couple days. What's going to happen to that fruit? It's going to rot. It's not naturally connected to the vine. You cannot do that. So often if we focus on the pillars, what we're doing is trying to tie fruit onto the branch to make it look like it is that which is acceptable. Jesus says, that's not going to work because it's not connected to me. You're doing these actions and the temptation is to focus on the actions and forget the vine. He says, I am the vine. You can't do this by yourself. You have to remain in me. Focus on remaining in me and you will bear fruit. The promise is you will actually accomplish the very thing that you're trying to do on your own. I will do it through you is what he's saying. So again, this is an aspect of humility. Humility, if I remain in him, he remains in me and I will bear much fruit. But the question is, how do I remain in Jesus? And I think Jesus answers this over the next couple verses. He says, if you remain in me, verse seven, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I would say the first thing he clarifies is, if you remain in me, and then he says, my words remain in you. So I would say remain in his words. This is exactly, and I would argue it is the testimony of Jesus Christ, and I would say very clearly given to us in the Bible, the word of the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is how we're transformed and conformed to the will of God. It's the idea of renewing the mind, a mind fixed on the glories of God, which is what we're putting forward in the idea of summit, that you're setting your mind on things above. But I love the fact that it has a promise, right? He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Man, I thought for so many times, oh, Lord, here we go. Ask whatever I wish and it'll be done for you. I mean, think of the things that you could think of to ask God. And he says, and it'll be done for you. I'm like, let's take this promise to the bank. Can I tell you that if you have a mind that is fixed on Jesus and glorying in him, that your requests will be way different than when they're not? I mean, absolutely 155%, which is a mathematical impossibility, different I would not ask for a new car. I will not be asking for a greater anything in my life. Why? Because I'm fixed on the glories of God. What do I want if my mind is fixed on the glories of God? 
I want more of the glory of God. That's what I want. And is God not delighted to give us the very thing that our heart is? Delight yourself in the Lord. And he says, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. I look at that and I go, well, obviously he's going to do that because there's always more of him to know. Always more of him. I, I recommend Psalm 119 to read. I know it's a, the longest psalm. But Psalm 119, if you read it over and over again, he, he's hearing and, and thinking and reflecting on the word of God. And over and over again, he's like, oh, Lord, I need more. God, give me more. God, this is so amazing. I'll sustain me by your word. Oh, Lord, your word is so good. Satisfy me in the morning. God, I need your word. Over and over and over again, his request becomes refined by the word of God for more of the word of God, to see God more. Do you think Jesus doesn't want to be known? He says, listen, remain in me, and I will give you more of myself. Ask for it. I will give it to you. I will give you more and more to see and to savor me and to enjoy me. And so that's why, again, this is the foundation. The foundation of the word of God testifies to Jesus. To remain in Jesus is to remain in his words. That is how you bear fruit. And it says that this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So it glorifies God when we remain in Jesus and bear fruit, proving to be disciples. So think of it again. We want to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. That glorifies God that we exalt Jesus Christ and therefore prove to be disciples. Because when we exalt in Jesus Christ and remain in him, we bear fruit, which proves we're disciples. So we're not really focused on making disciples. We're, pro, we're focusing you on exalt Jesus Christ and that will prove that you are his disciple and that's actually to his father's glory. So that's how we do it. It's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Peter. What else does Jesus tell me to remain in though? Because it's not just his words. Look at verses nine and 10. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So we not only remain in Jesus by remaining in his word, but we remain in him by remaining in his love. Look at how he describes this love. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. How much love does the Father have for the Lord Jesus? Would you say it's unending? And then Jesus says, that's the same love that I am giving to you. Would you say that that is also unending? Yes. But then you have this thing that says, well, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And you go, see, I knew it was about bearing fruit. You can't fool me. And I would say, what is this command? Well, look at verse 12. Verse 12, what does it say? My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Look at verse 17. He says, these things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. Let me ask you this. How do you love other people more? The Bible says we love because he first loved us. The Bible says that we know exactly what love is. He says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The way to love, think of genuine love. You want to say, how do I love people more? Focus on how much you are loved and you will naturally love other people. You will naturally love God. You will naturally love other people. That's the outflow. We're going to love because he first loved us. God's love, remaining in his love, is part of that foundation. You cannot move into genuine love until you understand that which is truly given to you of the fullness of the love that God has for you. And you would say things like, well, I still sin. Well, of course we do. Of course we do. I sin all the time, sadly. I'm wicked in my mind still, and yet I need constantly in those moments to remember again that God's loving kindness is the very thing that leads me to repentance. And I need further repentance, ongoing repentance, because I need to be reminded that when I see his love towards me in my forgiveness, that actually is a fuel for me to love him more, not less. Jesus tells the story of the woman and he says, this woman has been forgiven much. Therefore, she loves much. I think we should not be afraid of our sins 
bringing us to God or, our, or going to God with our sins. That's exactly what it is. God's kindness, the motivation of us is that God loves us. That our sins have not separated us from him, but that he will actually forgive them. It says, if we confess our sins, you have the hope that he's fully going to forgive you because he's faithful and just to do this. And he's going to do this. I think Jude 21, Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So nice. The final way to remain in Jesus is in verse 11. He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So I would argue he's saying to remain in his joy. Notice that it's not that we would have joy. Because our joy is weak. My joy is often changed by circumstances. It depends on various things that happen on whether or not I'm happy or sad or knock a water bottle or kick a chair or something like that. That's given by circumstances. My joy is weak. He says, listen, I want you to have my joy. That my joy would be in you. Think of the joy in heaven over sinners who repent. The Bible says, listen, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over sinners who repent. More joy than those who remain. He says we want to see people come to reconciled relationship with God. More joy in heaven. I think of how much joy is in heaven. Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. When you read the parable of the talents, there's this master saying to them, well done, good and faithful servant. How many times I focused on, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. What does he then say to them? He then says, enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward. Guess what? You're a good and faithful servant because you focused on the joy. You get the joy now. You get the fullness of joy of your master. And I think of this, what gives us strength to keep going? What even gives us strength to be good and faithful? It's the same thing that Jesus had for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. The joy, often I hear of Jesus being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and that is true, but that did not minimize or remove the joy that was set before him, that he would be exalted one day, and that through that exaltation, he would bring many sons to glory. I think of what John 16 says. Jesus tells the disciples, and uh, some of you recently had a baby, you ladies, and some of you are pregnant, going to be having babies. And Jesus tells a, an interesting story about what that's like. He says to him, he goes, listen, I'm going to be removed from you, and you're going to have sorrow, but then your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. He says it's like a woman who is in labor. She has labor for a moment, and it's painful, and she doesn't like it, but then it's over, and what happens is she has a baby, and it says that she forgets the sorrow because of the joy of a child being born into the world. He says there's joy that replaces the sorrow. And he says to them in John 16, so also you have sorrow now. He says, but I'm going to see you again. You're going to weep over me dying, but you're going to see me again. And your hearts will rejoice. And then he makes this promise. And no one will take your joy from you. No one can take your joy from you. He's giving you a promise that the resurrection of Jesus frees you to actually have continual joy. And you might say, well, I don't have joy. That's ridiculous. I've heard you guys talk about Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and I look at that and I go, you're nuts. That's not my life. Can I just tell you, you're focusing on the wrong joy. You're focusing on your joy. You need to focus on God's joy. What does that look like? Nehemiah 8 gives a great answer. The exiles come back from Babylon. They build the temple. Ezra is there. He's reading the book of the law. The book of the law, whenever it's read, the people grieve because they're overwhelmed by what they do not do according to the word of the law. Same thing happened with Josiah. Same thing happens here. They're looking at it and Nehemiah, Ezra, and the other priests, they say to them, they say, do not grieve. Stop grieving. Why? Famous passage. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it says the Levites, they calm the people down saying, be still. This is a holy day. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went home to eat and drink and to celebrate with great joy. Because this is what it says. 
They now understood the words that had been made known to them. God in his grace restored the people back to the land, rebuilt the temple, and still were his. He says, God still rejoices over you. God still delights in you. How many times have I sinned? I don't think that God rejoices over me anymore. In that moment, I have to remain in his joy and say, rejoice in the Lord always because the joy of the Lord that he has for me, not that I have for him, the joy of the Lord is my strength, not my joy in the Lord is my strength. His joy in me is my strength. I think of that church, do you see that? God loves you. God is rejoicing over you, delights in you, and his joy is the means, his love is the means for you to remain in him and to go to him and be satisfied in him. John 17, he says, and now he's praying, and he says, Father, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. He says, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And that's why he says, I've given them your word. I've given them your word so that they would have my joy in themselves. And then later on he prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Church, the foundation is this. Testifies that the only way to remain in Jesus is to know his love, to know his joy, and to know that everything comes from Jesus. Everything comes from Jesus. And John 15 is not some strange anomaly as if Jesus made this up. We see this throughout the whole testimony of the New Testament. Look at Colossians 2. Colossians 2, up on the screen, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. How do I receive Christ Jesus the Lord? It's by grace through faith. We already looked at that. As you received him, so walk in him. By grace through faith. What does that look like? It's rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Again, rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith. The faith, the faith, different from just faith, the faith is the message of Jesus found in the good news of the gospel. Just as you were taught, and look at the response, abounding in thanksgiving. If I am rooted and built up in Jesus Christ, then I will be established in the faith and I will remain in Jesus and I will abound in thanksgiving. Look at Galatians 2. Again, a passage maybe we've heard, but let's read it again. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And so now, this life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What am I focusing on in the faith in the Son of God? It's the one who loved me. And he gave himself for me. This guy, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. I live in faith in that. As Paul says elsewhere, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. Yeah, sure, I labored. But all the time, it was the grace of God in me doing these very things. He's looking at this fact that Jesus is the one who loved him, who gave himself for him. So thinking about being loved and saved, he says, emboldens your faith. This is what it means to remain in Jesus. Now, I have to admit that in our weakness, we desperately need that over and over and over and over again. But you know what's even more amazing about God's grace is that he doesn't even leave it to ourselves. He also promised to give us the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? So if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you. Look at what it says that the Spirit does in John 15. He promises, when the Advocate comes, it's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, what will he do? He's going to testify about me. He's going to constantly tell you about me. That's what he's going to do. I'm going to send him a helper, and he's going to testify to you about me. And then he says, and when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into truth. He will glorify me. Because he's going to take from me that he will receive and he's going to make that known to you he's going to glorify me he's going to testify to me and glorify me everything that the spirit does is showing you someone he's not showing you what to fix but he's showing you Jesus he's not changing your efforts or strengthening your efforts first he's strengthening your affections for the Lord Jesus and then your actions change and it's changing the glory that we see that changes our desires and our pursuits. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. 
Paul writes this passage because he says that those who do not believe do not see because the veil lies over their hearts. Again, affections, desires, their hearts are veiled. And then he says, now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he says, and we all with unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's the question, how are we transformed? Because you could read it and say, and we, leave out the next part, are being transformed. We all are being transformed, but how? Notice what it says. With unveiled face, the Spirit removes the veil, and what do we behold? We behold the glory of God. That is what the Spirit does. He testifies to Jesus. He glories Jesus or glorifies Jesus. And you and I then are able to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so before we talk about any application of the pillars or thinking about the pillars, we need to ask if we are seeing Jesus. Are we delighting in Jesus? Are we boasting in Jesus? And so we need the foundation. We need the Bible. But I want to help. Because I know as you're reading this, this is great in theory. How do we put this into practice? So here's a question I want to answer for the last part. How can you read the Bible and begin to enjoy and exalt Jesus? How can you read the Bible and begin to enjoy and exalt Jesus? One thing I would say is do what the Apostle Paul does and pray for it. Pray for it. Read Ephesians 1. Read Ephesians 3. Read Colossians 1 and Philippians 1, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would see these things. That's Paul's prayer. He's not asking for a good day. I love praying with my kids. God, give us a good day. God, help us to rest well. I love those things. But you know, my prayers for my kids are way different than their prayers for me. And that's okay. The Spirit's prayers for you are a little different than maybe your prayers to God. But this is what he prays. He prays that they would be filled with a spirit of wisdom and understanding that they would see and know God, that their eyes would be enlightened to know the hope of their calling, the power of God, and to be changed by these things. Todd often prays with us as staff, and he often prays this over us and over you. He says, Lord, will you please stir in our hearts a greater love and affection for Jesus Christ? That's what he's praying for us, and that shaped my prayers as well. Secondly, read the Bible. Read the Bible. You're like, well, that's an action. Yes, it is. It is an action. Read the Bible. How are you going to begin to enjoy and exalt Jesus if you do not read the very thing that testifies to Jesus? Do not quench the Spirit drawing you to Jesus. The Spirit, again, is constantly testifying about your need for Jesus. So I've thought of this in my own life. I don't have to watch TV every night. I don't have to watch TV every night. I love to, but I don't have to. I don't need to take a full lunch break, maybe, eating my lunch if you're at work. Maybe I don't have to see what I missed in media land first thing in the morning. Maybe I could spend some time elsewhere. And here's the thing. If you are praying for more of Jesus and to see Jesus clear, you have to be very certain that God will make those things that you enjoy less enjoyable and replace it with a desire for Jesus. He will do that. So pray for it. Third, soak yourself in gospel passages. Soak yourself. I think of that. Just stay in them. Think of passages like John 3, 16. Many of us could probably quote it. Think about it. It's a great verse. Romans 5, 1 to 8 is another one. Titus 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then what Corey was reading, Revelation 4 and I would say 5 as well. Great passages to remind us again of the glory of God and us as sinners needing this. I think of the idea of studying God's word, but also let me put forward to you meditating. Again, the idea of soaking yourself in gospel passages, meditating on them. Meditating is to emotionally glory in what you understand. If you understand it, the meditation, it's not just studying it, meditate on it. Let it emotionally change you glory in it. You start thinking about it, that just is literally everything that is overwhelmingly amazing in your life. Just, wow, God is good to me. That's amazing. And so when my kids are mean to each other and I have to deal with it again, if I've been reflecting on the patience of God that is mine in Christ Jesus, guess what? My actions 
often reflect that which I've thought about. Often. And let me remind us, the glories of the gospel will never be exalted. We can never exhaust thinking about this. We'll be thinking about them in the whole life to come. And finally, come to the Bible knowing you are already loved by God. I have to say that. So many times I've read the Bible thinking that I'm doing something to earn God's favor. Come to the Bible knowing that you're already loved by God. You're not doing this to earn, you are doing this to enjoy him. As Paul says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Church, it is finished. Enjoy the finished work of Jesus Christ, remain in him, and he promises that through that you will bear much fruit. And it is to the Father's glory that you do that, proving to be his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the simplicity of this message, but Lord, I know that the enemy rages against this as well. Lord, in our weakness, Lord, so often I turn to my actions and I want to see that I am living worthy of the gospel. Lord, you have made us worthy by dying for us. You are the one who approves us. Lord, I pray that we would understand very clearly that it is of greatest necessity for us to enjoy our relationship that you paid the greatest price to grant to us. It was not with perishable things. It was with the imperishable living word of God. His blood shed for us gave us full forgiveness. So thank you. I pray that we would rejoice because you are truly the king above all things. You are the one who reigns in heaven. And Jesus, we look forward to you returning. We love you. Hey, go ahead and have a seat. We're going to spend some time praying together. As I think of the words of that song, it brings me to this. What if I told you I have something that's so critical in the life of this church that it cannot wait another moment to say it? What would your response be? Say it. Okay, I will. I believe that in the life of the church, every next moment we live is the most critical moment in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And here is why. We are about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. We are about making disciples that are about exalting the name of Jesus Christ. And here's why the very next moment and the next moment and the next moment are the most critical moments in the life of the church because we are one moment closer to meeting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ face to face. And we're watching all around us right now the church reveal itself as it stands firm on the true and strong and powerful word of God. But there are some that are dividing, some churches that are dividing because they can't agree on doctrinal positions as it relates to purity. We see churches have membership leaving because the church won't accept this or that. The church is called to exalt the person of Jesus Christ and the church is making decisions that are not exalting the name of Jesus Christ. And then I know each of you right now have people in your lives that declare the name of Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior that are not living lives that exalt Jesus Christ. They have gone wayward. And those individuals in your life, the next moment is the most critical moment in their life because they are one moment closer to meeting their the one that is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we just learned from John chapter 15, those that remain fruitful, what a great day it's going to be. The ones that are proving that their fruit is worthless, it's not going to be a great day for them. So the next moment is critical. And so we are calling you, church, to a season of fasting and praying. 
because we're going to address those very things. We're going to address what does the church, what does our church stand on as it relates to biblical sexuality. And we want you to pray. And then we know you have those in your life that, are, that declare the name of Jesus Christ to be their personal Savior, yet they are living, in, living contrary to that. And so we want to pray for them as well. We want to call them back because their lives are not exalting the name of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 58 is our guide that we're going to use for the next four weeks. And so as we fast and pray together, church, I would encourage you to use that passage as your framework to fast and pray, to make sure you are right before the Lord, to make sure you are praying right as you seek the Lord. Our time of fasting should be one of self-denial. It's, it's not saying, okay, I'm not going to engage in this activity that is sinful. That's not it. It's saying, I'm not going to go after the, the good and created things, and I'm going to pursue the creator himself. I'm going to deny myself food, the things that bring me pleasure, that the Lord intends for me to to, for, intends for me to have pleasure and I'm going to set those things aside for a while and I'm going to turn my focus on the creator and express to him my seriousness for what I'm about to go after we're asking you to fast at least one day a week Wednesday if that would be your day deny yourself food entirely maybe that's not enough for you we're asking that you would deny yourself even a particular food whether it's a sugar-driven food, a salt-driven food, potato chips, chocolate, whatever it would be that would cause affliction. It's not supposed to feel good, so we're asking you to find something in your life that you can give up for a month that's going to cause affliction, pain. Jesus, we're serious about this. We want to pursue Jesus, the true bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One day a week, sundown to sundown, give up food. And if that doesn't work for you, find another way to bring affliction into your life. We have placed in your bulletins this prayer card. We're going to enter into a time of praying right now. Um, I'm going to walk you through your time of prayer. And so here's what I'm asking. I don't want this to be uncomfortable for anyone. So if you would prefer to sit by yourself, you feel free to do that. If you want to gather with a group of two or three around you, you feel free to do that. If you want to find your small group and again, come down here to the steps, we're asking you to do that. But throughout the time of our prayer right now, we're asking you, someone said to me when I was explaining this to her, she said, I want the whole church praying over the name of this individual in my life. And so we want you to write just the first name or names of the individual, the wayward in your life that you are going to be fasting and praying for. And then bring it down anytime from now until the end of the service. Bring it down and place it on the step. And we're going to put these names together and put, and put them on a sheet of paper and get them into your hands next week so the church can be praying over each one of these names. Okay? So take 30 seconds. I'm going to walk us through a, just a short moment of prayer. And then we're going to end our service, okay? Get together with someone or two or three, small group. Isaiah 58 says, Our fasting must be pure. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 says that God desires obedience more than sacrifice and to listen to the and to listen than the fat of rams. In our fasting, we need to find ourselves humble before the Lord not trying to manipulate him with pure hearts seeking his face and his good and perfect will so take a moment right now and lay your heart before the Lord and confess to him the sin in your life and ask him to make you right 
have a right standing before him as you walk into the season of fasting. makes us grumpy so think about the things that provoke you and confess those to the Lord Take a moment and simply exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Take a moment and intercede for those in your life that have gone wayward. Intercede on behalf of this church as we enter into a month of addressing some hard things. Stand with me. We're going to close in prayer. Prayer of thanksgiving. And bring your card down when you're ready. It's fine to walk while you pray. It's not a problem. Make sure your cards are down front before you leave, though. When I think about those in my life that are wayward, I remember this. It is but for the grace of God in my life that he has poured his undeserved favor in my life, his protection on me that keeps me from being where they are. I just thank the Lord Jesus for that. It brings me to a place of humility before him as I think about how do I dress this with my family. I'm so thankful. pray even as you bring your cards down here, okay? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your undeserved favor, your grace that you pour out on us. Oh, Lord, I would ask now that you would keep us firmly by your side. 
Lord, we just sang that we know our hearts are prone to wonder. They're prone to leave you, our God. And so, Lord, take us, seal us. Do not let us make a wayward decision. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the privilege it is to be in your kingdom. Thank you for the brotherhood and the sisterhood of Jesus Christ that we can stand here shoulder to shoulder declaring the same truth, and it's this, that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord. Now as we enter into the season of fasting, we pray that our fasting would be one that would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, we do not want to manipulate you with it. We want your will to be done. Draw us ever closer to you. And work in the lives of those that we are praying for. We exalt you today, Jesus, and on into the day and through the week. And we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to do that throughout the course of our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so wonderful to be with you, church, Summit Church. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Remember this, you are loved.